Today on Awaken to Grace, we are in part two of a sermon called Speak to the Mountain. This is out of a greater series called Walking with Jesus, a study of the book of Mark. And today we are in chapter 11. Now, you know, one of the questions that I've always kind of wondered is, why did Jesus curse the fig tree, especially when it wasn't in season, especially when there wasn't supposed to be fruit there? Then why did Jesus put a curse on it? And How does that link to the cleansing of the temple? I never quite understood that until deep diving into this chapter. Well, friends, we're going to answer those questions today and so much more on today's broadcast of Awakened to Grace. Josephus, the great historian, the Jewish historian, uh, shortly after the time of Christ, he recorded in 68 AD that that year for Passover, Jerusalem saw 225,000 lambs slaughtered for sin. Friends, we're talking about a whole lot. That's 225,000 households, not to mention the poor people who couldn't afford a lamb. So here's, so here's what Jesus is walking into. The temple should be a house of prayer. What it's become is a den of robbers. You got money changers everywhere. Why were there money changers? If you and I lived in North Israel on the Syrophoenician border, whatever currency that we carried to Jerusalem in our wallet, you couldn't use that currency in Jerusalem. You couldn't use it at the temple. Whatever money you bought in the marketplaces around Jerusalem, you couldn't use in the temple. You had to exchange your money for temple money. And guess what came with that? An upcharge. Well, could you imagine if you were poor trying to carry pigeons from North Israel down to Jerusalem and holding on to those things? Imagine trying to cover hundreds of miles carrying animals or a lamb or something. No, you know what most people did? They bought their animal at the temple. Well, guess what opportunity that made? Vendors. And guess what else dirty happened? Let's say you did bring a little lamb, and it was all that you could afford. Well, then I had to go through inspection. And guess what many times they did? They didn't pass the animal for inspection. So guess what you had to do? You had to cough up some money. And you know what had happened? They had taken what was meant to be holy and they had taken what was meant to be right before God and they had made an enterprise out of it. And here are all these vendors everywhere making hand over fist and profits were as high as they could be. And this is the scene that Jesus walks into. And let me tell you, friends, a holy and a righteous anger came into the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mark gives us, an I think, an enormous detail in verse 13. See, the law made provision. The Old Testament law made provision for people who were poor. Do you know what they could sacrifice? Pigeons. That was a poor person's sacrifice. And Mark tells us a little detail. Mark says, and he turned over the tables and the seats of those who sold the pigeons. Why did Mark isolate the pigeons. Now, I don't know this for a fact. Uh, I've not heard any Bible commentary say this, but it's just my hunch. 
Do you remember when Jesus was born to that little couple from Nazareth in the town of Bethlehem? And his earthly father was a simple carpenter. Do you remember what sacrifice they made? Pigeons. You know why? Because Joseph and Mary were very poor. And I think that when Jesus saw particularly them selling the pigeons, his mind went back to mom and dad and what little they had and how people were being taken advantage of in the house of God. And let me tell you, he wrecked the whole place. I think of this courtyard with 30, 50, 80 people in. No, 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 no. There were hundreds of thousands of people. And Jesus flipped the tables. He threw the money everywhere. I mean, he went on a rampage that was holy and righteous before his father. Why? Because he said, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. And he said, you have made it a den of thieves. You know what he's quoting? Jeremiah 7, 11, A direct quote. All through chapter 11, prophecies being fulfilled. Now here's what I want you to understand. Here's where I get to the application today. Major things are going on. Prophecies being fulfilled. Daniel 9 is happening. Zechariah 9 9 is happening. Jeremiah 7 11 is happening. All kinds of things are going on. And Jesus, when they leave, so the next day, uh, verse 20, I want you to look at that with me. The disciples walk by the same fig tree that was cursed the day before. And who remembers what Jesus said? What's the text say? Peter. I've argued throughout the entire series why I believe that Peter is the author of the book of Mark. I believe Mark uh, penned it, but I believe Peter dictated it. I've argued that through the entire series. Not a hill to die on. It's just my personal opinion. And Peter remembers that Jesus cursed it to its roots. Well, he cursed it, and then it says it withered to its roots. And Peter remembered. What's the point? Let me just give you a few more interesting things, and then I'll get to the major application. There are five temples that the Bible mentions. Did you know that? Five temples. There was first the temple that King Solomon built. That was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then there was the temple built after the Babylonian captivity. And then that was destroyed between the covenants. And then there is this temple that is in the day of Christ. That was Herod's building that he built. This was the crown jewel of Judaism. This was everything. The temple was everything. Jesus said, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he meant his flesh, his body, but they thought he meant the temple. They were wrong. However, Jesus did pronounce a curse on it. And here's what I want you to know. The fig tree 
is tied to their religious life. It's tied to the temple. And what happened? Jesus cursed it. It was going to wither at its roots. And what happened shortly after Christ died, fulfilling Daniel 9, 24 to 27, it says a prince will rise up and will destroy Israel. And what happened on A.D. 70? Christ died in A.D. 33. And what happened in A.D. 70? Titus, the Roman general, utterly destroyed Israel. And he destroyed the temple. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that not one stone would be left upon the other. Friends, that was fulfilled to precision. Titus was so greedy for gold as they melted gold in the temple. The gold had seeped in and between the cracks of the rocks of the temple floor. And Titus commanded his army to rip the stones out of the floor just to get the gold. And the words of Jesus, literal were fulfilled. And Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. And what are the implications of that? That is Daniel 9, 25, 26 being fulfilled. And now for the last... Think about this. Now say amen if you're with me right now. From A.D. 70 to May 1948, the nation of Israel, the state of Israel did not exist. From AD 70 to 1948. And do you know what the thrilling thing is of our day? You know what the thrilling thing was of the book of Acts? Is that the church of Jesus Christ and the nation of Israel coexisted. Friends, that wasn't the case for the rest of history until our generation. And now from, from the early church... Until now, the nation of Israel and the church of Jesus Christ coexist on the earth at the same time. That's prophecy being fulfilled. But it's only going to be for a short while. Because very soon, the trumpet of God's going to sound. And the church is going to be raptured. And then God's agenda goes back to his people. Israel. It's all prophecy. It's all going to be fulfilled. So the temple was destroyed. That was the third temple on the earth. Now, the next two temples have not happened yet. The fourth temple, the Bible teaches in Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 and Mark 13, the Bible teaches that there's going to be a fourth temple during the 70th week of Daniel. Friends, that's the seven year tribulation period. Now, how in the world is there? Do you know where the temple is going to be? Where the Muslim dome of the rock sits now. How in the world will that happen? Because let me tell you, this coming world ruler, this man who's going to ride on this figuratively white horse, according to Revelation chapter 6, this man who's going to be a master at diplomacy. This man who's going to bring peace to the world. This man that the Bible calls the beast. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. This man is going to emerge on the world stage and he's going to do what no U.S. president will ever do or can ever do. 
He's going to bring, pre, he's going to bring peace to Jerusalem. And my personal belief, what I think is going to happen, is I think Israel is going to be so starving for security. Oh, don't let me get into Russia and Ukraine right now. I just bought a website domain last week called Russia'sEndGame.com. Don't go there yet because it ain't built yet, but we're building it right now. And do you know what Russia's Endgame is? Read Ezekiel 38, 39. Russia's Endgame is Israel. And Israel is going to be so hungry for security and safety, and they're going to be so hungry for their temple. Do you know what this Antichrist, I believe, is going to be able to do? He's going to be able to trade Israel's security for the temple mount. And how he's going to negotiate it between the Muslims and the Jews, I don't know. But that's why the world has never seen a man like him. And he'll have the ability to do it. I'm way off in the weeds. Let me get back on track. So verse 20. Here's my point. The fig tree withers at the root. There's never been a temple again since since A.D. 70. And there won't be until the catching away of the church and the 70th week of Daniel begins. That would be the fourth temple. Just for your knowledge, the fifth temple is prophesied in the book of Ezekiel, starting with chapters 40 through the rest of the book. And that fifth temple is going to be the millennial kingdom temple. And what a treasure and what a joy that will be. But what happens now? What's going on in the church world? What about in our day? Where does God dwell? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You are not your own. You've been ransomed. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God which in your bodies which belongs to the Lord. We now are the living sacrifice. We don't have sacrifice animals. We are a living sacrifice unto the Lord, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Where does Christ dwell? In our heart. Who does the Holy Spirit infill? Believers. We are the very temple of God. Amen. He no longer dwells in temples made with hands. He dwells in us, the church. So when Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins at the house of God. Is, could this be where Peter learned it? Watching Jesus cleanse his temple? Watching Jesus cleanse the courtyard? I bet that's where he learned it. And now we are the temple of God. Let God examine us. Let God examine. Let God cleanse His church. Can we say amen? Amen. Now, watch the great transition that happens. Verse 22. So now, rather than looking to a religion, rather than looking to a system, rather than looking to Judaism or looking to temples or looking to sacrifices or some kind of religious ritual or ceremony. No, not anymore. 
Jesus is going to introduce a better way. Remember, Hebrews calls the old covenant obsolete. There's a better covenant. There's a better way now. And look what Jesus is going to teach us. Verse 22. Have faith in what? Religion? Have faith in church? Have faith in yourself? No. There's only one object. There's only one source. Have faith in God and God alone. Nothing else. Now, friends, I want to show you something right here. I want to show you what the Lord is teaching me right now in my own faith, in my own prayer life. Verse 23 is an exhilarating verse. Jesus, after cleansing the temple, after cursing the fig tree, knowing that all of this is going to become obsolete, knowing that there is a church coming, there's a Holy Spirit, a comforter, a guider that is going to infill us now that everything's going to be totally different and completely new. Now look what he says. He says, truly, I say to you, if any man says to this mountain, be removed, Be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says. He'll have what he says. Oh, my goodness. What is Jesus saying? And then verse 24, he says, therefore, that's a a transition word. That's the conclusion. He's saying, this is the point of what I'm saying. Therefore, when you pray, ask, believe. That you receive, and you'll have what you ask. Friends, that's faith. But where does it start? It starts with verse 22. We get real excited about verse 23. We get real excited about verse 24. But let me ask you what the difference is. What's the difference between manipulating God? What's the difference between trying to crack a code with Scripture? What's the difference between positive thinking and real, authentic, genuine faith? What's the difference? The difference is in verse 22. Have faith in God. Friends, my faith is not in my prayer life. My faith is not in trying to quote the right verses. My faith is not in trying to twist God and make him cry uncle. My faith is not in trying to make God feel sorry for my needs. No, my faith is not even in the outcome. My faith is in God and God alone. That and nothing else. Friends, when we get that straight, when we get that right in our heart, then we're not going to pray to God trying to manipulate Him, trying to get what we want like it's a giant wish list for God. No, we're not going to pray that way. We're going to come to God as He is, a good and a generous and a faithful God. We're not going to be like the persistent widow that sees God as an unjust judge. We're simply going to ask. What an invitation from Jesus. When you pray, ask. Why? Why is there such an invitation to ask? Because, friends, it's not religion. It's not systems. It's not ceremonies. It's not rituals. It is faith in a good God. That's the foundation on which we ask God to intervene in our life. So note what he says. Go go back with me to verse 23. 
If any man says to this mountain, now what's a mountain? In the Old Testament, mountains represented difficulties. Anybody remember what was said to Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4, 7? Who are you, O mountain? Stand against Zerubbabel. Who are you, O difficulty? (laughs) Oh, let me tell you, you can speak to your problems today. You can speak to your difficulties today. See, I don't know about you. I find it fascinating that Jesus tells us to pray in verse 24, but he don't tell us to pray in verse 23. He says, speak to the mountain. If anyone says to the difficulty, if anyone says to the problem, be cast into the sea, it'll be done. Now, why does God say that? I want you to think about this. Out of all of God's creation. I mean, even out of the stars and out of the moon and the planets and out of all the climate and the atmosphere and agriculture and animals and out of everything that God has ever created on this planet. Let me ask you a question. What has the ability to just like God think and articulate and communicate and speak out our thoughts? Only those of us who are created in the very image of God. Amen? Don't you tell me that we are part of an animal kingdom. Oh, no, 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 my friend. We are created in the very image of God. Amen? Because of that, how did God create the world? He spoke it into existence. And this is the kind of dominion, this is the kind of authority that Jesus gives us to speak. Not pray to it, and not pray about it, but to speak to it. Why? Because when you do that, you step into the rightful authority that God has given you for as many as believe On him to them gave he the right, the power to become the children of God. And you're right in your authority. This is not about religion anymore. It's not about rituals or systems. It's about having that closeness with God Almighty, that our faith is not in faith itself. Our faith is not in our prayers. Our faith is not in our our doing it right. Our faith is not in cracking some code. Our faith is not that God is a genie in a bottle. It's not that I want to manipulate God. It's that I am going to simply take God at His word. What is faith? Faith is fully trusting in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. What's real faith? It's when I don't lean on my own understanding, but I lean into God as hard as I can, and I rest in Him, and I trust in Him, and I say, God, I can't control the outcome. I don't know how things are going to shake out, but God, I know that You're above it all, and I know that my faith is in You alone, and therefore I take Your authority, and I take Your dominion, and I speak to this mountain to go in Jesus' name. 
Thank you so much for listening to our broadcast today. I did want to take just a moment and mention our store. If you go to our website, awakenedtograce.com, just navigate to the store page and you're going to find music by all of our awakened artists and plenty of books by Pastor Chad. Also, while you're on the website, you can view Pastor Chad's story about his blindness and what the Lord is doing through him through Awakened to Grace and through our church, Preaching Christ Church. Thank you so much for joining us today on Awakened to Grace.